All right, well, we come to our text again in the book of Ecclesiastes and moving along in this amazing book to look at Solomon and all that he has taught to us and consider the significant distinctions between the three books which he has written, Song of Solomon written early in his life, Proverbs written fairly shortly thereafter as he had young children, and then this, the book of Ecclesiastes at the end of his life. And as he does so, we continue to glean wisdom about our world and all that is going on. And we will, again, Lord willing, tonight, our text tonight, again, is from Ecclesiastes chapter 2 and verses 12 to 26. So if you would take your copy of God's Word and turn there, Ecclesiastes chapter 2 and verse 12, and you'll note at the back of your prayer guide that there is an outline with uh, a title and theme and the particular points of our message this evening. Well, yesterday in Boise and in Idaho and across the United States, our citizens voiced their opinions on political candidates and issues through the voting process. This democratic means of the people being able to control who rules over them and what rules they are under is an excellent endeavor. It is what founded our country and it is when it properly operates that we see it in its highest form. And this ideology is what underlies the majority of the military endeavors which we as a country have engaged in since our foundation. And yesterday in the process, the state of Ohio voted to reestablish the abominable practice of their legal murder of unborn children. In response to the approval of abortion and the reenactment of the ability to murder the unborn, the media videoed the citizens of Ohio leaping for joy and frolicking over this victory as it was announced. This is a most heinous and deplorable condition. And I rarely post on social media, but I was so outraged at this that I shared Matthew 27, 25 and reflected on the unfathomable darkness that is in the human heart. In Matthew 27 and 25, we come to the end of uh, uh, the Lord's trial phase And as he is before Pilate there, Pilate is asking why they're screaming to crucify him and acknowledging with no response from them that he is going to wash his hands of this matter. And interestingly, amidst that situation where no response was required from that crowd, they scream out the most objectionable phrase and one that I've reflected on so very, very often. And they said, His blood be upon us and upon our children. And I just think, how can one make such a statement? And yet, this is exactly what we see ongoing. And that's what this vote reflects, the collective wisdom of the people of Ohio. And not just them, as they join six other states in our country that have reenacted this deplorable and despicable process. And this wisdom and this darkness are exactly what are reflected upon in our text tonight from Ecclesiastes. And we see this in our title, which I have titled our message for this evening, Of What Value? Knowledge. And our theme, Four Aspects of Wisdom to Measure Your Understanding. 
So far, we've seen Solomon's review of life under the sun as vanity. This, this was his introduction in the first three verses of chapter 1. And in chapter 1, we focused on the vanity of creation and also on the vanity of man's existence. And he further expressed the vanity of wisdom. And his reasoning for all of this vain, empty, futile, and enigmatic life is because of our existence in a sin-cursed world where absolutely everything is impacted by the fall of man. And in the style that it can only come from the man of the greatest wisdom, he, in fact, the wisest man of all time, he illustrates via a paradox these concepts that we saw in chapter 1. That is, the concept of creation, man's existence, and the pursuit of wisdom. That they are the highest and greatest end. But when they're pursued apart from God, i.e. under the sun or under and apart from heaven, they are worthless. And these aspects of life pursued without God are vanity. The way Solomon alerts us to who, are no, who these are not and who are not as wise as he is, but they're generally pursuing the truth of the scripture's meaning. And he, he shows us this through an incredible example as he presents to us this, uh, these elements that, again, are of the highest import. When we think of creation, when we think of man's existence, when we think of the, the remembrance of man, these are tremendous things. When they are pursued in the understanding of God and all that he has done, and therein he is worshipped for them. But when they are done apart from that understanding, they are, are meaningless and of no value. So Solomon alerts us to these details. And again, these who are genuinely pursuing the truth. And that is, he's, he does so and he even indicates that he is making a paradoxical comparison because he leaves these huge gaps in the text. As he described for us in chapter 1, the aspects of creation surrounding the, the water cycle, he leaves out the idea of rain. Well, who would do that? I mean, this is arguably one of the most important concepts of the rivers flowing to the sea and the sea not emptying nor being dried up. It is the rain that continues to move the water through that cycle. And he leaves that out very purposefully. So that we would recognize that he is identifying a consideration of these systems that is indeed apart from God. And this is what we see in, in chapter 1. In chapter 2 and verses 11, we examine, which we examined last week, it showed us the vanity of life's pleasures in a sin-cursed world. Particularly those pleasures that are pursued in contrast to 1 John 2, 15 and 16, where the aspects of the lust of the eyes and the lust of the flesh and the boastful pride of life are those things which man pursues. And today we're going to engage in the consideration of knowledge, again per our title, Of What Value Knowledge. Now let's look at our text from Ecclesiastes chapter 2 and verses 12 to 26, and then we'll make a few points about it. If you'd follow along as I read Ecclesiastes chapter 2, beginning in verse 12. So I turn to consider wisdom, madness, and folly. For what will the man do who will come after the king except what has already been done? 
And I saw that wisdom excels folly as light excels darkness. The wise man's eyes are in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. And yet I know that one fate befalls them both. Then I said to myself, as is the fate of the fool, it will also befall me. Why then have I been extremely wise? So I said to myself, this too is vanity. For there is no lasting remembrance of the wise man as with the fool. Inasmuch as in the coming days all will be forgotten. And how the wise man and the fool alike die. So I hated life. For the work which had been done under the sun was grievous to me. Because everything is futility and striving after wind. Then I hated all the fruit of my labor for which I had labored under the sun, for I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And who knows whether he will be a wise man or a fool. Yet he will have control over all the fruit of my labor for which I have labored by acting wisely under the sun. This too is vanity. Therefore I completely despaired of all the fruit of my labor for which I had labored under the sun. When there is a man who has labored with wisdom, knowledge, and skill, then he gives his legacy to one who has not labored with them. This too is vanity and a great evil. For what does a man get in all his labor and in his striving with which he labors under the sun? Because all his days his task is painful and grievous. Even at night his mind does not rest. This too is vanity. There is nothing better for a man than to eat and drink and tell himself that his labor is good. This also I have seen that it is from the hand of God. For who can eat and who can have enjoyment without him? For to a person who is good in his sight, he is given wisdom and knowledge and joy. While to the sinner, he is given the task of gathering and collecting so that he may give to the one who is good in God's sight. This too is vanity and striving after wind. Praise God for his word. Our first aspect of wisdom to measure your understanding this evening is in our first point, which I have titled providence. That one simple word, providence. Solomon begins in verse 12 by carrying us into his subject, which is wisdom. And he begins with the verb, I turned. This is a a common verb from verse 11 where we just saw it previously. And it means that that which was previously presented in brief will now be given an extended consideration. And with that we recognize exactly the structure of the book of Ecclesiastes. Solomon has initially given us detail on these elements in chapter 1, and now he's going to move us forward. And his consideration of wisdom that he's diving into tonight is compared to madness and folly. Both these words are used together back in chapter 1 and verse 17, showing us the previous brief illustration of this topic that will now be expanded. In fact, chapter one really is an overview of the whole book. It gives us a a quick summary of what's being spoken about throughout the book of Ecclesiastes. Madness is stressing the irrational and sporadic aspects of insanity. 
It is an extreme lack of wisdom, but not that which exists continually in an individual, but is displayed at varying times, again, on a sporadic nature. On the other hand, folly or foolishness is a a more complete absence of knowledge and is marked by often one person operating out out of a sense of fear and irrational behavior rather than recognizing the facts and the truths that are before him. Again, we clearly recognize that the main component here is that absence of God, that vanity, that life under the sun. Because when we consider God, as I was speaking with uh, some folks before our service, we recognize his sovereignty. And we need not fear. We need not get ourselves all up into a knot. We need not be worried about all these matters because we recognize God is bringing this all to fruition. And this, of course, is a big part of our understanding of providence This idea of operating out of fear and rational behavior that Solomon refers to as folly or foolishness is exactly what we see the very same term being described of of King Saul in 1 Samuel 13, 13. And there Samuel goes to Saul after he has disobeyed the command of God and says, Would you have been wise, God would have established your kingdom. But now because you have been foolish, your kingdom will be taken from you and given to another. We also see the same term even used regarding King David. This in his census that he took of the kingdom at the end of his life. And in that text, in 2 Samuel 24.10, we see Solomon again functioning in order to establish himself and out of a, a mechanism of fear, or David rather, recognizing that the end of his life is approaching. And so rather than trusting God and knowing all that's going on, he seeks his own acclaim. He seeks to establish all that he has done in the kingdom by identifying how many men are now a part of Israel. And therein to take credit for it. Well, at the end of verse 12, Solomon considers his successor and questions what further might he do than the king has done, specifically identifying here for what will the man do who will come after the king except what has already been done? Immediately, we recognize who this individual is. It is Rehoboam. It is the king that would follow in Solomon's footsteps. The Hebrew construction of this last phrase is characterized by a great harshness, as Hengstenberg notes. The phrase, what has already been done, is literally what they have already been done. And although this might be something that would quickly escape our attention in the grammar, it's not to be missed. Because at the beginning of the sentence, we have the singular, or at the beginning of the clause, for what will man do? We have the singular man. And at the end, we have what will they do? We've got a, a transition that occurs in that pronoun that's, that's not accidental. Because Solomon is identifying some major things that are going on here. The singular successor is the man. And again, our repeated The Adam is used here as opposed to the regular Hebrew word for man. 
and then the singular switching to the plural they. And this is because Solomon is reflecting on mankind in general who is foolish and thus likely so also will his successor be foolish. He is reflecting that his own wisdom is a gift from God and he recognizes this. It is not something that he attained. In fact, it's what he asked for in 2 Kings and which God acknowledged and granted to him as well as riches and power. So he is reflecting upon the gift of wisdom that God has given him and that most likely his successors and particularly his son Rehoboam would not have. He's also reflecting And this is something that is so important for us to recognize. He is the last king of Israel who is specifically ordained by God. Saul was ordained by God, specifically chosen, and Samuel was sent to him to make him king. As the people cried out to have a king like all the other nations. David was chosen and anointed by God through Samuel to be king. Although it took several years for him to come to that kingship. Solomon too, although in a different way, but was also called by God to be king. Because as you recall, one of his brothers had already acceded to take the throne when his mother Bathsheba got word of it and went to the king. And David goes before the Lord. God had told him that Bathsheba's son would be king. That is Solomon. And so therein, Solomon too is directly ordained by God. But from then on, Rehoboam and all the rest of the way through the ongoing kings of Israel and Judah, they are all simply successors of men. We have no indication of God's uh, establishment of them. And we only need briefly consider Rehoboam to realize this would come forth exactly as has been expected. Rehoboam was only king for a few months before he had lost all that Solomon had established. When the people of Israel came to him and said, your father Solomon was harsh and collected strongly from us and if you will but relent and listen to us, we will serve you faithfully. And Rehoboam went to Solomon's counselors and asked them, is that true? What should I do? And they said, yes, it is true. And yes, you should listen to the people and you should relent and you should acquiesce to their desires and they will be faithful and they will be a nation and you will govern them. And then he went to his youthful advisors. said, what shall I do? And they said, forget them. You know, you are, you are so much more powerful. And, and so Rehoboam comes back as he promised and tells them, my father disciplined you with whips. I will discipline you with scorpions. And it's stating that, that he is thicker in his little finger than his father's thigh. And with this makes this crass and vulgar and incomprehensible statement. And yet this is God's providence. But the darkness, which is both madness and folly in our text, continues forward to Rehoboam and are what Solomon continued to discuss in verse 13. And in verse 13, he expresses this exceeding value of wisdom over foolishness. One commentator notes, wisdom is compared to light, which 
preserves the man who walks in it from many dangers to which the darkness exposes him. Now we're very familiar with the concepts of light and darkness in scripture and they are most usually associated light with righteousness and honor and darkness with wickedness. Now I've heard pastors state that whenever you see darkness in the Bible it's always talking about evil. That's not an accurate statement. It most often is, but there are places where God actually enshrouds himself in darkness. But the idea here clearly is this separation. It clearly is identifying this distinction between that which is right and that which is wrong, that which is honorable and that which is wicked. So also in verse 14, wisdom, wisdom's light causes the man to see and avoid dangers that the fool walking in darkness is to be subject. And yet at the end of verse 14, providence will have its way where it says, but the fool walks in darkness and yet I know that one fate befalls them both. So the the fate that is coming forward, that which God is going to ordain will occur to both individuals, both the wise and the foolish have that which lies before them. Verses 15 and 16 carry forward this providential end where it says, then I said to myself, as is the fate of the fool, it will also befall me. Why then have I been extremely wise? So I said to myself, this too is vanity. For there is no lasting remembrance of the wise man as with the fool. Inasmuch as in the coming days, all will be forgotten. And how the wise man and the fool alike die so as he carries forth this idea Solomon begins reflecting to himself literally again as we've seen so often in the in the book of Ecclesiastes I myself said in my heart we often see mind indicated of that as we have in many of our previous cases but Solomon returns to this experiential knowledge of the heart not the head knowledge or the general understanding but that which he himself has experienced and that which he knows from firsthand interaction and this is the eighth time already where in Ecclesiastes we've seen the word heart one more time even in this verse And the fate of the fool is the same as the wise. Solomon is here referencing not just the end of life, although that is in mind, but also the events which happen as one lives his life. Yes, all alike will die. But so also all will have difficult and challenging times in their lives. Calamity does not visit itself only upon the fool. It comes upon each life. But he is not here making accusation against life. He's not making accusation against God because of this. Rather, his accusation is against the extreme pursuit of wisdom. As verse 15 states, he is acknowledging the vanity of human efforts and possessions. And he again spoke to his own heart. You know, this was one of the things that God blessed me to have an understanding of shortly after he called me to himself. 
You know, I had, I had lived 37 years of my life pursuing the world's values. I had uh, sold a significant piece of property in Haley. Um, we had uh, nice cars. We had a large new home. And uh, it just seemed like that was the way things were supposed to be. And I was right there in the middle of the keeping up with the Joneses ball game, so to speak. But the reality was that there is no end in that. There is no end to that pursuit, for never will one have enough. And more than that, we recognize, as I had mentioned, I think, in our sermon a couple weeks ago, that that the letter that I wrote to my clients, I, I often title the he who dies with the most toys letter, is not that he who dies with the most toys wins as our world holds, but that he who dies with the most toys dies. And that that could no longer be my pursuit. And that God had shown me that this was an empty and hollow endeavor. And this is exactly what Solomon is referencing. This is the accusation that he is making. Martin Luther notes, God is sovereign and each man is to accomplish whatever God gives him to do. If he does not, if it does not go well, or as expected for him, if one is afflicted, leave that with God. Even if God hinders a man, take that also for good. And what cannot be done or affected, leave that alone. You know, it's just a, this is a statement of God's sovereignty. It is a, a picture, as our point indicates, of God's providence. And verse 16 strongly reinforces this by noting that in death, both the wise and the fool will be alike and both will be forgotten. Furthermore, furthermore, both shall die like the other. And this introduction was given to us back in chapter 1 in verses 10 to 11. Again, the, the quick introduction of the topic and now a much deeper and more fleshed out review. So if the fervent pursuit of wisdom cannot overcome the afflictions during this life, nor triumph at life's end, this must not be the subject of our earnest pursuits. In verse 17, Solomon's hatred of life is that his pursuits of wisdom are humiliatingly humiliatingly revealed that they are the same results as for the fool. That those that are pursued in knowledge and wisdom and success are nothing apart from God. And yet this is the truth of life under the sun. It is true of wisdom that is pursued for wisdom's sake. Certainly this is not the same as the pursuit of godly wisdom. Quite the contrary, in fact. Those who pursue godly wisdom, those who understand repentance and God's sovereignty and his need to work in each life, recognize and gain that tremendous advantage. But those who do so for its own sake and their own sake find nothing but vanity. And this is exactly what we see recognized, that the pursuit of wisdom apart for God and under the sun for man's glory must be abandoned and laid bare for that which is truly the, the recognition and the relationship with the Lord. And this takes us to our second aspect of wisdom by which to measure your understanding, and that is progeny. Progeny in verses 18 to 21. 
Verse 18 introduces our second point where it says this, I hated all the fruit of my labor for which I had labored under the sun for I must leave it to the man who will come after me. One commentator identifies that so also in verse 17, this verb hated is not to be considered as a, a violent objection or an opposite of love, but it is a growth, it, it is a built up disdain. As one experiences certain circumstances and begins to be repulsed by them. And this is what Solomon is identifying. This is in essence a continuation of the theme from the previous verses which focused on Solomon's successor, on his son Rehoboam. As he considers all that he has done and that he is leaving it to one after him, one who likely will be foolish, one who, as we know from the record of history shortly thereafter, did destroy everything, did split the kingdom and did lose most all of his father's wealth and power. And this is what Solomon is reflecting upon here. Verse 19 begins and formally states the question from the previous section. And who knows whether he will be a wise man or a fool. Yet he will have control over all the fruit of my labor for which I have labored by acting wisely under the sun. This too is vanity. All, whatever the case is, this man will have charge. There's nothing I can do. There's no interaction. There's no way to go before God and to, to plead my case for this situation because God is sovereign and in control of all of this. And the result of all of this comes in verse 20. Therefore, I completely despaired of all the fruit of my labor for which I had labored under the sun. The result is complete despair. Literally, despair in his heart over this labor. His heart is burdened over all that he has done. As he has pursued all of this, we recognize that in much of his pursuit and in all of that which he describes for us in this, in this letter, he is talking about that pursuit apart from God. Again, that which is under the sun. And in verse 21, it collects all his wisdom of his heart about his progeny. When there is a man who has labored with wisdom, knowledge, and skill, then he gives this legacy to one who has not labored with them. This too is vanity and a great evil. All his pursuits will be given to his progeny. This one will not have the same ability, the same desire, or outcome. And we recognize this almost immediately again after Rehoboam took over and he had lost all that his father had acquired. And Solomon now expresses not only the vanity of this condition, but the fact that this is a great evil. And here for the first time we recognize this consideration of, of darkness and wickedness that are coming together. And he is identifying that these facets that are done in this fashion and the transferring of this wealth and of these possessions to another, that too done apart from God is not only vanity, but that it is great evil and wickedness. Solomon, again, is summing up all that he's done and he is uh, bringing to conclusion the question in verse 22 of what does man get? 
And as he, as he does so, as he brings that question forward, it implies the answer for us. And we look at verses 22 and 23 where we get to the escalation of these circumstances into our third point, which I've titled pain. Pain. Verse 22 and 23 read, For what does a man get? in all his labor and in his striving with which he labors under the sun. Because all his days his task is painful and grievous. Even at night his mind does not rest. This too is vanity. And again the question, what does man get? And the answer is nothing. The result is pain and grief. It is vexation and torment. It is suffering And his life is full of that suffering. Even at night, his mind, and again, here we have the word for heart used in the original language, the 11th time so far in these chapters, his heart has no rest. What an important recognition for us. And we see this very same concept in Philippians chapter 4 and verse 7, where we're told that we are to with supplication to bring our requests before the Lord and he will give us rest for our hearts. And there is no rest. We recognize as well from the Psalms that it tells us that rest is a gift from God and the book of Hebrews develops a theme of rest all the way through it beginning with the idea of the rest that God took on the seventh day leading to the Sabbath rest leading ultimately to the eternal rest That God would give. And we know again from Psalms that rest and sleep is a gift from the Lord. And it is something that we have to continue to recognize. And so also Solomon is here identifying the same consideration and stating this too is vanity. Solomon is summing up all this section in the question of verse 22. What does man get? And the answer is nothing when He should not be consuming all our lives with perplexing and distracting matters of self-achievement or gain. And yet this is what man often does. It is what can I get? What can I do? How much more can I acquire for myself? And Solomon states to us that, that that is of no value. That is of no benefit. Little to nothing is gained by these expeditions of Pain and suffering and vexation. So now he turns to our final point, our fourth point in our message this evening, which I've titled Prophet. Prophet in verses 24 to 26. Verse 24 begins by showing us the true answer. There is nothing better for a man than to eat and drink and tell himself that his labor is good. This also I have seen that it is from the hand of God. The point Solomon makes is that man must make it his aim to live for and enjoy the moments of each day. These are expressed as the the blessings of food and drink. But clearly, these are not that which is to be enjoyed or pursued for their own sake or for themselves Because this would be contrary to the statements that he made back in verses 2 and 3 of chapter 2. Where he talks about feasting and drinking. And identifies that it too has no value and is vanity. But 
Clearly, these are not which are to be enjoyed and pursued of themselves. They're the, they're the understanding as the good gifts of God as Scripture describes them. One of my favorite verses that focuses on those good gifts that the Lord gives to us is found in the book of James. And in James chapter 1 and verse 17, we read, Every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. Everything that we have, brothers and sisters, is a gift from God. The food that we eat, the the water that we drink, the lives that we lead, the homes in which we live, the church that we have, the friends and fellowship, this all is God's gift to us. Coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no shade nor shifting shadow. That, That concept alone is incredible. There's nothing, there's nothing in the created order that does not have a shadow. No physical element exists without a shadow. You could take uh, an array of aircraft landing lights and place it five feet over your head to where it would just about melt you and there would still be a detectable shadow with the light meter. Only God himself is that which has no shadow. And in that, he brings these gifts to us. And as we consider when we are giving thanks to the Lord for our food. This text comes completely to the fore and reminds us that this is our necessary end to give him thanks for that which he has done. And this is exactly what Solomon is reflecting on in this case. The phrase in verse 24 to tell himself that his labor is good in verse 24 in the Hebrew is literally to cause his soul to see good in his labor. And this is just another one of those terms that I just love the way the the Hebrew jumps out. You look, if you have your New American Standard, there is a footnote one there that will confirm that translation. And these ideas of heart or here soul the the life-sustaining, immaterial component of man, that it is the soul that sees good in our labor, the connectivity of our material flesh and the immaterial soul and spirit of which we are made are brought together in that the immaterial aspects see good in that which we do. It sees good in that which God has given to us. And it is for that which we must continually give thanks and praise God. And that we are to enjoy and to recognize that this is God's gift to us. And that it is from him and therein to be enjoyed in its fullness. The concept again of soul is so vital in this consideration as it is so expressive and important. Verse 25 confirms that point where it says, For who can eat? And who can have enjoyment without him? Is there enjoyment apart from God? Not true enjoyment, not true understanding. Oh yes, we can find some temporary earthly pleasure in these things. But the true gain and the true good comes only through recognizing God. This this is our joy in sharing Christ with the world around us. Because yes, they live and yes, they can do a a modicum of good and yes, they can enjoy the lives in which they live, but never can it be to the full. Never can they understand the joy that we have in our hearts. 
because they don't recognize the source from which that joy comes. And verse 26 brings all this to conclusion, including that subject where it says, For to a person who is good in his sight, he is given wisdom and knowledge and joy. While the sinner, he is given the task of gathering and collecting, so that he may give to the one who is good in God's sight. And this too is vanity and striving after wind. The one who is good in God's sight is the one who is receiving wisdom, who is receiving knowledge, and receiving joy. And think about that when we think back to Galatians 5 and 22 and the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, thankfulness against such there is no law. You know, joy, those are all a fruit. It is, a, it is the work of God's Spirit in us that brings the culmination of all of those facets to our life. And joy immediately following that primary gift of love. It isn't to the man pursuing these things that they're given, but to the man to whom they are given. We have no role in that. I, I don't go and do a bunch of great stuff and God says, okay, you should be joyful because of that. Because I never good, did good stuff. I know that's wonderful English, but I went to school in Haley, so you'll get over that. But the reality is, it's all from God. There, there is nothing in me that merits any good from God. The only good that is in me is that which He has placed in me. The power of His Spirit living in me and the good works which I do that are a function of those which He has ordained such that I would walk in them. We used to tell our kids all the time, if you ever see us doing anything that is right or good, it's because God's doing it. And all the other times when I blow it, that's all me. And and it hasn't changed. It's the same. It is that recognition of what he's, he's doing. These come again to the man who God deems good in his sight. And this isn't to say that men are good. It isn't to say that we can earn a good thing. It isn't say that we can be good enough to get into the graces of God. We know that's not the case. If any man could be good enough to earn God's grace, then he would never have sent his son to die on the cross for mankind. But we can never get there. And because this Good in our context, this word good is the absence of evil and yet we understand all men sin. So this isn't speaking about some type of righteousness that somehow we're going to achieve as if sinless perfection were a reality. It is not. We're never going to get there. Hopefully we're growing each day. We're understanding more about our sin. We're understanding more about the way that we fall short of the glory of God and living more rightly and righteously. But that too is his work in us. That too is his his power and his spirit working through us. And contrasting this is the plight of the sinner. Not here identifying the former group again as those without sin. They're not. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God from Romans 3.23. But these are the ones whose lives are characterized as sinners. That whose lives are exemplified and they show by their actions that their characteristic is that of a sinner above all. The ones whose lives show that forth. And to those, they are the ones who will be subject to this extreme labor. They are the ones who will be 
subject to the task of gathering and collecting this, this onerous endeavor of pursuing the things that God has ordained for them to partake of. And not only that, as if it were, that were not a contrast enough, but to even to these works which God has ordained to them, those things which are collected and gathered will be given to the one who is good in God's sight. And that aspect of their gathering and giving off is that very same concept of vanity and striving after wind or as we've seen that verb feeding on the wind. Their pursuit is never to the honor and glory of God. You know, we talked about how as we look through the book of Ecclesiastes, there are these various structures and you can see them identified in your Bible. If you look at chapter one, you notice that in verses uh, three, uh, two through 11, there's this poetic structure and our, our Bibles show that in the way that they indent and align those sections. We see the same thing in chapter three and verses one to nine, which Lord willing will come to next week. And that we, could, so we said we can identify these as, as sections of the book. These can almost be a, 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 a mega narrative. They can, they can be the outline of the major elements and, and the outline of the book. And indeed it is. And here we see it carried forward in the grammar. Solomon has spent two chapters identifying for us vanity of life under the sun without God. And now he has given us a glimpse. Now we have a picture of that which is fulfilled. That which brings life and brings hope and brings joy and brings knowledge and wisdom. And it is that which is done in light of God. Now, when we get to the end of the book, we're going to have a major piece of that. But he now gives us just a little hint, just a little picture from this structure. And as he does so, he continues to remind us of the contrast between us and our world. Our world's pursuits are malice and murder and the things contrary to God. But those things which are pursued to and for God's glory, those things which are accepted and reveled in as that which comes from his hand are those things that are of maximum value. They are the gifts that he gives us in how we are to enjoy our life. Solomon has been continuing to express to us how do we find joy? How do we find meaning in life? And at each turn, it's been vanity. It's been feeding on wind. It's been worthlessness. And now... Now we see that which is of value, which is those tasks that God has given that we would enjoy them, that we would engage and delight in his daily gifts into our lives. And understand that as the world is contrary to that, that they are the ones who are doing so because they too are living their lives under the sun, under heaven and apart from God. And we, beloved, are the ones who have been given this message of life to carry and share with them. Who would want to live their life recognizing at turn after turn after turn that all of my labors, all of my endeavor, all of my pursuit of joy and hope and wisdom has been vanity? When the answer is so simple. The answer is Jesus Christ recognizing his death, burial, and resurrection. That he alone has paid the price for our sins. We don't need to be a Bible scholar. We don't need to be a PhD or a pastor, an elder or a church leader 
to proclaim these things. We just need to have the Holy Spirit dwelling in us. And we need to recognize that without that understanding, this life of vanity and hopeful, hopelessness, of futility and enigmatic, ununderstandable consideration is all that they have. And yet if they would but turn and cry out to the Lord that he would open their eyes and that they would have the blessings that you and I have and that we could worship together with them and they could come be a part and delight in our dinners and our fellowship and all the gifts that God has given to us. Who has the power to do that? Well, you do. Of course, God is the only one that can bring life and hope to an individual. But he uses broken and cracked clay vessels like me and like you as he continues to polish and hone and refine us through the power of his word so that we would carry it forward to that world that so desperately needs to hear. May we be encouraged to that end tonight. Father, thank you for the power of the word. Thank you, Father, that it is the reflection of you. Thank you that it gives us such amazing perspective and nowhere else more uniquely than here in the book of Ecclesiastes. We thank you, Father, for the gift of, of these verses and of this work and of the hope that is ours in Christ and the ability to understand these things because of the power of the Spirit living in us. And as that Spirit helps us to know and understand, Father, help us to employ the matchless power of the Holy Spirit to carry forth the unmeasurably powerful name of Jesus Christ, which is the only name under heaven or on the earth by which men can be saved, which you have given to us, and Father, which we would delight to see you use for your glory in bringing more sinners to yourself. And we give you thanks for all this work, praying it in Christ's name. Amen.